This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the, at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, this week, President Biden signed his infrastructure bill into law, which leaves just a few legislative priorities through the end of the year. The most pressing is the now $1.75 trillion reconciliation spending bill, often called Build Back Better. It's been criticized for many different reasons, one of which is its 10-year score and cost, which the CBO is about to uh, finish releasing. But in your column, you focus on a different part and even call it a, a social infrastructure spending bill. Can you fill us in on what changes the Build Back Better bill would make to the power of American unions, as well as the changes within the the National Labor Relations Act and and, and how they affect the, the Fair Standards Rela- uh, Labor Act as well? Okay, look, I mean, I think the most important thing to recognize is that in many ways, uh, the financial provisions of this particular statute are less important than the structural changes that are going to be made. I mean, a trillion dollars here or there is a lot of money, even when it's spread out over 10 years. Uh, But what happens is when you put the substantive provisions in with relationship to unions, they will have no sunset provisions, but will continue indefinitely until you can get somebody else to change them again, which will be very, very difficult. Uh, So there are at stake in this particular case two major statutes, and one of these statutes called the National Labor Relations Act, which was passed in 1935, then known as the Wagner Act, which was modified substantially in 1946 called the Taft-Hartley Act, and the other is the Fair Labor Standards Act, which was passed in 1938. Uh, These are essentially the two major pillars of modern American labor law. I am vigorously opposed to both of these particular statutes and would repeal them in a second if I could, but that's not what the issue is in this particular case. There has been a kind of political equilibrium in the United States where the statutes in their current form essentially have been um, steady now probably for about the last 70 or so years or even more. What the Biden administration does to do is to change that fundamental balance in a way that will switch itself hugely in terms of giving um, advantages to labor unions. So the Fair Labor Standards Act is a statute which regulates overtime provisions on the one hand and minimum wage provisions on the other. And so the question that you have in these cases is, first of all, how do you determine what is or is not a violation of these statutes? And it's very, very difficult. I wrote a long article once going to all the endless permutations of what counts as an hour for the purposes of the Fair Labor Standard Act, because it's on that hourly figure that the entire uh, penalty structure is done. Uh, what has happened is what they want to do now is to up the penalties that are going to take place for various kinds of situations. And these are not trivial increases. Uh, so with respect to the um, vi- individual violations of minimum wage and overtime, and they want to move this from 1100 uh, to $20,000. That's a close to a 20-fold increase. Now, the reason you have to worry about this so much is since these things are contested, it's going to be exceedingly difficult for employers to clamp down on anybody at any time, knowing that if they've gotten the wrong situation, the penalties that they're going to have to pay are going to be completely ruinous. And so what you will see in effect is that there will be less of a willingness of the employers to clamp down, for example, on the amount of overtime that they give uh, in order to avoid the time and a half overtime penalty that the statute requires. And if these penalties become very, very large, what could happen is it could interfere 
interact with the union side of this particular matter as unions, in effect, knowing that this statute is there, can try to use this as a way to making fundamental changes on that situation. On the other side of the situation, uh, there is, in fact, the National Labor Relations Act. And this is a statute which requires compulsory unionization. And what it says is you will have the government, by uh, essentially administrative procedure, uh, define something that counts as a bargaining unit. And then all the workers within that particular bargaining unit get to vote on whether or not to accept or not accept union representation. If the union loses business goes on as before. If it wins, it becomes the exclusive bargaining representative for each and every member of that particular union. And so there's this constant question that you have to worry about as to whether minority rights within this union structure can be adequately protected and respected or not. Uh, The issue in this particular case, however, is not the internal governance issue. It's the question about um, whether or not you engage in certain kinds of unfair labor practices. Uh, An unfair labor practice can be defined, for example, as as dismissing a worker because they're a member of a union who actively campaigns in that regard. And so uh, in order to make sure that unionization efforts are not going to be hampered, what they do is they create unfair labor practices or when you start to do these kinds of activities. Now, uh, at this particular point, the remedies that we have in these cases are back pay on the one hand and reinstatement on the other. Uh, Back pay, of course, is uh, uh, limited by the amount of money lost. Reinstatement doesn't impose any penalty. What the Biden administration wants to do now is to impose financial penalties, and these can go up to $100,000 for each discharge or other major case of economic harm. And then there are penalties for $50,000 for each lesser offenses, including technical compliance issues. And what you have to understand is each discharge gets itself that particular penalty. So if there's a large bargaining unit, an employer could be sent absolutely down the tubes. And what happens is the degree of discretion that's given to the administrations will be quite enormous because it says the penalties are up to $100,000 and then it turns out, or up to $50,000, and then it turns out you can bargain within that particular range. Well, if you're trying to figure out how it is that you're going to assert your rights as an employer, and you now know that the downside has been essentially multiplied by a factor of 10 or even 100, uh, you're going to find it much more difficult to resist unions at every particular stage in whatever kinds of activities um, that they want to engage in. Uh, So uh, you do this kind of thing and you're in trouble. The uh, statute also contains um, provisions in which what you're going to do is just say, we're going to give you certain kinds of benefits in various kinds of activities dealing with solar energy or whatever else it turns out to be. Uh, But what's going to happen is you're going to get these things only if it turns out that you accept unionization. Uh, Well, this means in effect that now what they're trying to do in addition to punishing you if you resist it, to try to bribe you into doing it by engaging in these kinds of various sorts of projects. Well, I just can't understand why it is that we would want to switch this particular balance. Uh, the union explanation is quite simply this. We can't unionize large numbers of workers, to which the answer is it's because you can't supply them in a rapidly dynamic competitive economy the same kinds of benefits that a union might have been able to provide for its workers in the old assembly line days that existed when the statute was first passed in 1935. All right, Richard, one point you mentioned in your column 
is that this bill may push us to a point where union contractors get systematic preferences over non-union contractors. It's a point that I haven't seen uh, discussed uh, many other places when, when talking about Build Back Better. It, it, you know, it's from a Democratic point of view, that might be, you know, the point. But I'm, I want to know if it might run into judicial trouble with the uh, National Labor Relations Act, the NLRA, which I, I think, right, is supposed to protect the right to organize as a union, but also the right not to. So, I mean, what does the federal law say now, uh, and and what's what is the true purpose of the of the NLRA? Well, I mean, the provisions you're referring to are orthogonal to the ones that I'm talking about here. The original version of the statute, the Wagner Act, was passed in 1935, uh, essentially or protected the rights of unions to organize, uh, or workers to organize and to form unions. When the Republicans took back the control of Congress in 1946 after the Second World War, they said, look, the freedom of association has to work both ways. You have the right to associate if you want, but if you decide that you don't want to have have a union under these circumstances, then the National Labor Relations Act is going to protect those workers, particularly if they're a majority, um, who are against that. So that's essentially what the balance is. And there's nothing here which says that the workers can't turn down unions, as they often do. So that part of the statute isn't changed. What happens is it's the incentives on the employers that change uh, because employers are not, uh, shall we say, parties who are indifferent to the way in which the situation works. And there is right now a very complicated body of speech law. And the issue is what it is that an employer can say to his workers when they're about to unionize. If you had a system, for example, in which an employer was not bound by unions under any circumstances, uh, they would, in my view, have no particular reason to get involved in any internal union deliberations amongst workers of the plant as to whether they want the union. The workers could say, oh, we desperately want to have a union. And the employer says, I'm not going to give you that union. I can't operate under those circumstances. Take it or leave it. And in those particular cases, uh, workers could form unions and then you would have the confrontation as to whether or not that union was powerful enough uh, to command uh, loyalty in the workplace from the employer or whether the employer would go elsewhere to get peace. Now, of course, the employer can't simply refuse to bargain. That is called the quintessential unfair labor practice of bargaining in bad faith or not bargaining at all. Well, now you have the situation where if a union can dominate the particular workplace because it has the exclusive right, is an employer doing the organizational phase of this thing going to be allowed to, under any circumstances, pitch its case to the union? And so what happened in the Taft-Hartley Act is they kind of passed one of these inelegant compromises. What they said is you are not allowed to uh, threaten workers on the one hand or to promise them a benefit on the other. Uh, But what you are allowed to do is to tell them what the lay of the land is and make predictions to how the future will go. So this then becomes something of a grammarian's paradise. And if what you say in effect to workers, if you guys decide to organize, I will decide to move out of this state and leave you high and dry, that's a quintessential unfair labor practice. But if you say many plants have been organized and they've left the state in order to get more attractive situations, and that prediction may happen here, I can't tell you it will or it won't, that now is not going to be regarded as um, a coercive activity. 
Maybe. And so you then get this area, is this an implied threat? Is there an implied benefit for not unionization? It gives rise to very many tense situations under the uh, labor law. And what makes this thing so very, very difficult is that if you didn't have this sort of forced unionization movement between them, uh, you would never have these limitations on speech. So the way in which this goes in standard market situations is I come up to you, Mr. Church, when you want to have a raise in your particular role. And what I do is I say, you know, I don't think you're worth it. Uh, Take a hike, guy. Uh, and you come back to me and say, you know what? I don't think you're worth it either. Goodbye. And so all of it is, is the whole world is filled with threats uh, to leave or not to leave, which are perfectly legitimate. But you cannot say, and if you don't do this, I'm going to kill you. That's a form of traditional coercion, which still goes. But in the union context, coercion is defined much more broadly. Um, and so therefore, what happens is since these two parties are constantly linked together, uh, this is a constant stress arrangement. Over time, what has happened is is that workers realize uh, that it costs too much for them to have this very expensive middleman introducing these very complicated procedures that require constant judicial oversight and constant uh, care on the part of both unions and non-union people as to do the right thing or to get themselves in trouble. So private union membership is now around 6% of the general population. Uh, It's more influential, that number, because it's sprinkled in key sectors throughout the economy. But there is no question uh, that the trend line is unambiguously down. It was about 35% of the workforce was unionized in 1954 when the AFL and CIO decided to merge in the private sector. Now they're down to about 6%. And the reason they're down to this situation is they just cannot, in this kind of an economy, provide workers with any sorts of benefits. Uh, To put it in the simplest form, it's difficult enough to work two-party arrangements. But the moment you inject a third party, the level of complexity probably goes up tenfold. And you have to prove some productive benefit. Otherwise, what you're going to see happen is everybody will go the way of GM from 1979 when it had a half a million employees. It had a very tough union contract. It negotiated a situation where anybody who was laid off could go into a rubber room, quite literally. And they sit there and if they sat there all day, they get their payments, even though they weren't working. Uh, The company couldn't sustain that. The union eventually gave it up. But the company did go bankrupt after its workforce had been reduced by about 90%. Uh, These are the sorts of things that you have to worry about with respect to unionization. But Joe Biden is the world's most pro-union president, and and he's a man who's utterly oblivious to the larger social trends that make many of these union provisions so dangerous. And to try to strengthen union hand by a one-sided system of legislation is just asking for trouble. Is it unconstitutional, Tom? I can speculate if you want, uh, but the short answer is I really don't know. I'm sure we'll see it fought through the courts. All right, Richard, I got to end asking you about um, something you mentioned at the the end of your column. We're we're talking about a reconciliation bill, right? This bill, Mm -hmm. you do things to reconciliation so that you can avoid a filibuster, right? I mean, this is important Mm -hmm. in a 50-50 Senate. And you suggest that this bill might not pass under reconciliation rules. Can you walk us through the facts that you think the parliamentarian should take issue with? Yeah, I mean, look, 
the uh, reconciliation bill is a very recondite situation. And what it's designed to deal with is exclusively those kinds of situations that are concerned with taxation, spending, and debt legislation. So what you're trying to do is to have an expedited pass because the financial stuff won't wait. Now, when you start dealing with something like a major reform of a labor statute and so forth, what happens is this could wait a very long time because you could still make your budgetary requirement. And so what you have to do, therefore, is not use reconciliation. And the Democrats have already tried to go through the reconciliation process with respect to their $15 minimum wage law. And their argument, which I regarded as preposterous under the circumstances, well, of course, a minimum wage law has to do with taxation, uh, spending, and legislation, because if you pass a minimum wage law, uh, then you're going to change the amount of money that's going to be given to workers. And so, therefore, it's going to influence the amount of taxes they're going to pay. The difficulty with that sort of an argument is that everything then becomes a subject to reconciliation if you take into account their indirect effects. So in this particular bill, I mean, it cannot be said, I think, that any of the fines that you're talking about would count as taxing or spending situations. They're fines. They're not taxes. They're only imposed upon activities that are illegal. Uh, it also turns out that the whole basic structure of the labor statute has nothing to do with the three things that I talked about about taxation, spending, and debt legislation. So you should not be able to do it. And what's so really depressing about all of this is that the Democrats know this every bit as well as do the Republicans. There's nobody, I think, who in good faith can say that this thing should work through reconciliation. And yet they're willing to try it anyhow. And I don't know whether the parliamentarian will, will cave here. She did not cave the first time around. I hope she would not cave in this particular situation. Uh, but this is a kind of a situation that brings to mind something that Kim Strassel said in one of her Wall Street Journal columns some time ago. The Democrats know, and I use that word in the political quotation sense, that they are going to lose control of the House and probably the Senate come 2022 in the election. Uh, so for them, there is no tomorrow. So their attitude is they would rather lose the future election if in this particular situation they could put forward a reform that they really want in the short run, knowing that it will outlive the transient majorities that will occur in future years. Uh, and so that's they're willing to basically take it. Now, who's going to go down the tubes? This is, of course, one of the peculiar arguments about what I call the ultimate theory of necessary political injustice. The Democrats, of course, are a party divided within itself. Uh, there is a relatively moderate wing, which is not comfortable with any of these things. And there's a progressive wing who thinks that they're doing too little and too late, even if they pass this bill. What happens is, uh, as they push this thing further and further forward, uh, particularly if it passes, which I do not at this particular point think that it will, and then there's going to be a backlash all of the very strong progressives are in safe democratic seats. All of the moderates are essentially in contested seats. Uh, so the sacrificial lambs are not the people who are basically marching everybody up to the gallows. It's the people being marched up to the gallows and asked to vote. Now, my own hunch about this is that they will at this point start to balk, A, because they don't want to become history, and B, because I think they kind of understand uh, that Nancy Pelosi is in her swan storm. She's not going to be the Speaker of the House in the next term. That could be wrong. Things could change in many ways. But I think, isn't she supposed to be retired? Am I wrong about that, Tom? Well, not. Oh, she hasn't sure. announced. I don't think she's Neither announced. I. Well, I mean, but all of that stuff is there. So uh, it, it is this constant sense. When you win, do it. 
And by the way, this was also kind of true, interestingly enough, way back when. The Fair Labor Standards Act was passed in 1938, right? You mm-hmm. remember what happened in the November 1938 elections? I think the uh, Democrats the, lost quite a few seats that election. They lost 100 seats in the House and what, 8 or 10, 12. There's a huge rout. And so what they did is they got the thing through. It's still around, right? And then they <laughs> lose the seats. And so you just ask yourself if you really care politically, is it worth committing political Harry Carey for two to four years to get legislation that you really care about for 80 years? And the answer is yes. Interestingly enough, and that's what gets me so crazy, because the reason the Democrats are pulling so hard on this thing is because they know there's no tomorrow for them. They got a president whose popularity is around 40 percent and sinking. Um, It turns out that they are utterly riven with a set of issues which they cannot deal with in the short run. They have the inflation problem. They have the crime problem. They have the school education problem. They have the feckless foreign policy problem. Uh, The Biden administration is marked by so many short-term failures uh, that it's almost impossible to conceive that they will take middle America and be able to keep the majorities they had. He's dropped, what, 13 or 14 points in the polls since the election. I mean, you have to be really good to do that. Good at being very bad is what I really mean to say. And so given this particular dynamic, that's why you're getting this kind of feeding frenzy. And so I'm going to end with the point that I began this little discussion with, is it is a mistake when you look at bills like this to think of them primarily as revenue bills. The structural provisions have longer durability and larger financial consequences on what's going to go on. They're going to change the level of productivity within a society, and that in turn is going to influence the amount of share capital gains that you're going to get, income that you're going to get from goods and services and the like. It's going to have huge effects. They're all, in my judgment, going to be negative. Uh, But for the Democrats, they believe in the following proposition. If you transfer wealth to workers, it turns out that the economy will, in fact, gain. The New York Times has constantly written to the effect that you want to encourage productivity, the thing to do is to pass a minimum wage law. And if you believe that, there's no trade-off between equity and efficiency. Everything goes in exactly the same direction. If you think that these guys are wrong, uh, then they're basically a suicide movement, uh, which is the way in which I regard them. And I think what the public is finally coming to realize is that you can't forestall the finger of fate forever. You cannot play the Paul Krugman line over and over again. Interest rates are low. Let's really spend a lot and borrow the money. Uh, Sooner or later, that kind of an argument turns out wrong. Right now, there's still an argument as to whether or not this inflation is transitory. Uh, But the fact that it's been going on for six months indicates that even if it is transitory, it doesn't mean it's going to go back to 2% very immediately. So for the next six or eight months, we're going to have to contend with this. And with all the other problems that we have, we have an American public in a very nervous state. So my guess is that the legislation will not pass. But if it does pass, it will be, I think, truly catastrophic. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening.
This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.